This is episode 118 of Reconcile the Isle. What on earth is going on? Rocket Man. Puerto Rico. Russia, 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 Russia. Eight accusers. Several allegations. Thousands of cases. Charlottesville. Horrific shooting. Deadly school shooting. The third deadly mass shooting in a week. Category four. California wildfires. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. Government shutdown. I've never seen this country divided like this. This is astounding to me. Reconcile the Isle. Welcome to Reconcile the Isle, where my characters and I are figuring out how we can have meaningful dialogue about difficult topics. My name is Lauren Lejudice. Today we're going to speak to a special guest, Loretta Ross. But first, let's go to our Stupid Stupid People people segment. For those who are new here, it's the part of the podcast where we salute stupidity. Because what unites us across all sorts of boundaries, what unites the world, is that we all hate stupid people. So in this segment, my dad rants about the stupidest person he's seen that week, and we rate their stupidity and assholeness in rectums. So here's our segment, Stupid People with my dad, Charles Legitice Jr. Okay, these people who are inconsiderate, Parkers, you know, like the a parking special. Let's say if there's somebody's house or something, and there's enough space for two cars, two regular sized cars. I'm not talking a limo. I'm not talking a fucking Fiat. I'm talking two regular sized cars to park without blocking the driveway or anything. And these fucking jerks, they got to park right in the middle. You know what I mean? So now you got to go around the block or something else. You got to carry packages or something. That's just fucking inconsiderate, you know? And then uh, remember a story when we lived in Howard Beach, I parked the car, I came home, and the next door neighbor's car, uh, there was no spot in front of our house. So I parked in front of the next door neighbor's house, right? Which was a legal parking spot. When I came out the next day, the mother had written on a on a paper plate, please park here in front of my house. So guess what I did? I took the plate and I put it in my glove compartment. And two years later, her son has his driver's license. And he goes to park in front of my house. And I come out of the house and do me a favor. Don't park here and give this to your mother. Have a nice day. I never saw her again. I never spoke to her again. And I was happy. I don't give a shit about her, you know. But these fucking people over parking spots, they think it's fucking land that they own. It's a New York City street. You know what I mean? And that's it. It's not like land that you could put up a sign, uh, trespassing, and I'll fucking shoot you or something. It's the fucking street. You know, those people, four rectums. Okay? All right, four rectums for people who take up two parking spots instead of one. Yeah, fucking inconsiderate jerk course. Wow, people are so stupid. Let's get to the interview with special guest Loretta Ross. Loretta J. Ross is a visiting professor of practice in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. Previously, she was a visiting professor at Hampshire College in Women's Studies for teaching white supremacy in the age of Trump. She was a co-founder and the national coordinator of the Sister Song Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, a network founded in 1997 of women of color and allied organizations 
that organize women of color in the reproductive justice movement. She is one of the creators of the term reproductive justice, coined by African-American women in 1994 that has transformed reproductive politics in the United States. She is a nationally recognized trainer on using the transformational power of reproductive justice to build a human rights movement that includes everyone. Ms. Ross is an expert on women's issues, hate groups, racism and intolerance, human rights and violence against women. Her work focuses on the intersectionality of social justice issues and how this affects social change and service delivery in all movements. Ms. Ross has appeared all over the Internet. Ms. Ross has appeared in numerous press outlets. She was the national co-director of the April 25, 2004, March for Women's Lives in Washington, D.C., She was the founder and executive director of the National Center for Human Rights Education, Atlanta, Georgia, program research director at the Center for Democratic Renewal slash National Anti-Klan Network, launched the Women of Color program for the National Organization for Women, now, and led delegations of women of color to many international conferences on women's issues and human rights. She was one of the first African-American women to direct a rape crisis center in the 70s, launching her career by pioneering work on violence against women. Her forthcoming book is entitled Calling In the Calling Out Culture, to be published very soon. Now, if you're wondering if call-out culture is something new, how to use call-outs productively, why it's dangerous to call everyone with whom you disagree, you'll want to hear this episode. Call-out culture is one of the biggest, biggest, biggest topics going on right now. It's very, very important to understand the history of this, and there is no one better than Loretta Ross to give us that perspective. Stay around to the end to hear about this episode's giveaway, and you can always sign up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the link to all the wonderful things that my podcast guests and I give away for free to subscribers. And you'll get reminders when we publish this every other week. My co-host Melania Trump, she was busy doing Kegels on her Pilates machine today, so she couldn't join us. She sent us this message. Hello, police department. I'd like to report a crime. The comedian Lauren Lojudice hacked into my brain and wrote down my thoughts in a book. Inside Melania, what I know about Melania Trump by impersonating her. She writes my missing diary entries, fan letters, and imagines fairy tales with the Trumps. Please arrest her, Mr. and Mrs. Policeman. You can find the book that I don't want you to read at www.insidemelania.com. All right, let's go to the interview with Loretta Ross. Thank you, Loretta, for visiting us on Reconcile the Isle. We're very honored to have you. So let's talk about call-out culture. How did you come to start to work on call-out culture? Well, because I'm elderly and slow to the internet, it was uh, only about five years ago that I noticed that people seemed to feel free to say anything they wanted to say online. And I began to doubt that they would say a lot of that stuff to a person in person. Mm. And so I started asking the young people that I teach, because I teach at colleges, what was going on? Was it always so vicious over the internet? Mm-hmm. And, they, and this young woman, Mariosa, told me, oh, that's call-out culture. And my first response was, you named it? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And I asked her, well, what are you doing about it? And she kind of shrugged and didn't have an answer. And so I began thinking about 
my activist history and how many times call outs really hurt our movement because of sectarianism and red baiting and gossip and things like that. So that gave me an idea that those of us who had been through that, those cycles of calling out, particularly withstood the FBI's COINTELPRO program, we may actually have something to share about how we can yeah. build better unity in the face of this neo-fascist threat that we're dealing yeah. with. Because never has it been more serious that mm -hmm. we, you know, the choir sings, sings the same song. And what is red baiting for people who, and um, sectarianism for people who don't know? Well, red baiting is a term when anybody who did civil rights or human rights activism was accused of being a communist. Mm -hmm. So that's the definition of mm -hmm. red baiting, accusing you of being a communist when you ask for social welfare programs mm -hmm. and, you know, fairness and things like that. Mm -hmm. Sectarianism is a different term there's a lot of people who believe in alternative social and economic theories, particularly Marxism, Leninism. And what I found as a black activist when I was young in my 20s is that a lot of the white activists seem to be spending a lot of time debating whether Marx or Lenin or who, Trotsky or whoever was right. Mm -hmm. And they became what we call sectarian because they were apparently dividing over minute differences while they were all being attacked by the state in a red baiting threat. Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and so as a result, I didn't want to join any of those groups despite a few invitations. And that was something we survived, but it, not all groups and not all the work that we did survive yeah. because we were vulnerable to it. And so I wanted to share through the call yeah. out culture book things yeah. that we had learned. And I am very privileged to live in Atlanta, which is the birthplace of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And I've had a chance to talk to several of my elders like Reverend C.T. Vivian and Joseph P. Lowry and they had their fights, too, as a civil rights movement, but they knew when to strategically unite. Yeah. And, and so I, I had the benefit of that. Yeah. And in some of the reading um, you had sent me, I was reading about how doing a call out is actually a maneuver, a civil rights tactic that people use, but selectively. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, like what that meant to call someone out in the civil rights movement and how that's different than what's happening today. Well, call-outs are best used when there's a disparity in power, a lack of accessibility. Mm -hmm. When you're speaking to an elected official, for example, who's not upholding their campaign promises and are trying to ignore you, it really is the art of trying to shame people into doing better. And that's why I think it's best used when it's a lack of accessibility. Because if you have access to the person, you have a whole array of strategies you can use before you even get to the call out. The call out should be the last resort, not the first one, if you yeah. have access. It's interesting because now we have more access to people than ever, and then we're calling them out. A lot of calling out is horizontal. It's not even vertical to yep. deal with the power structure. 
it's with other activists because they don't yeah. know the right language or they're not woke enough or yeah, yeah. they work on a different focus that yeah. you think they should be working on yeah. or they just recognize the nature of the threat after November 2016 when Trump got elected. And so yeah. a lot of the calling out, I think, is splintering our potential for resistance rather than uniting it because it is so horizontal. We're so busy worrying about relatively minute things that we forget that we should not be dividing over stuff like that. Yep. I, and, I love this quote in your, the first chapter of your book, your upcoming book about call-out culture. Uh, it is dangerous to quibble amongst ourselves when facing neo-fascist enemies dedicated to denying our humanity and wiping us off the face of the earth. Without grace and compassion, our movement can appear inauthentic and unsafe through a downward call-out spiral. I think the most important part of that sentence is the last part, because our job is to make being part of the resistance a joyful process, a, a welcoming process, somewhere people can practice being their better selves in. And if all we display is something that's repellent, that's yeah. antagonistic and competitive, I don't think anybody of right mind would want to join us. <laughs> yeah. I remember being in college and being so terrified to speak out because you're just going to get piled on. That's what the call-out culture does. Yeah. It, it really impoverishes our pools of meeting because we don't get to share what everybody is thinking because some people are intimidated by yeah. the brutality with which an unfolding thought is shared or is received. I mean, sometimes you open your mouth and you haven't finished thinking it through. And by the time you get to the fifth word, someone's jumping down your throat. Yeah, absolutely. And making you feel like you're a terrible person because of that. And exactly. it, yeah, it's, it makes it, it makes it like um, hard to, and it's also like important, I think sometimes to talk things through so you can like make mistakes, if, if that makes sense. If you're right. just not going to talk at all about it, you're not exploring the nuance of what we're trying to accomplish. That's why we call them the unfolding thoughts, because sometimes mm -hmm. your thoughts are constructing themselves as you run your mouth. Now, I mean, of course, the totally wise person only speaks when they totally thought it through, but I'm not sure many of us meet that ideal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, totally, absolutely. Or someone like doesn't know what they're doing until thinking until they tweet it out, and then what yeah, happens and, then? Yeah. And that's why calling out culture has to be countered with the calling in culture yeah. based on love, because if you really are working hard on what's going on inside of you that makes you want to put somebody on blast, yeah. you may really consider whether that is what you really want to do and if that's the result you really want to achieve just because you disagree with something or how they said something. Interesting. What is the difference between calling out and calling in? Well, a calling in is a call out done with love. So you don't ignore what you perceive as the harm. Mm -hmm. But because you don't assume that it's harm, you ask the person other questions mm -hmm. rather than jumping down their throats. Like when you said so-and-so and so, I'm not sure if I understand completely what you meant. Do you mind if we have coffee and talk more about that word you use so that I can better understand mm -hmm. 
where you were coming from, or you can come off, you said da 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 we don't use that language anymore, and you're underdeveloped, and you need to read more, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I guess, like, the, the, now we talk about, like, different venues for this calling-in process. So, like, for instance, there's people you know, friends, and there's family, and then there's, like, people on the internet. How do we do it differently in those different spaces? Well, I think we do it from the same ethos in all of those spaces. But I think which strategy we choose is also is affected by what's our relationship with the person, whether it's on social media or in the family. I mean, I have family members. I don't bother to call in because I know them too well. <laughs> it won't work. <laughs> <laughs> I have other family members that I hasten to call in because even though we may not agree on some stuff, you know, we've got the family bonds and the family respect and the family love as our backstop. And generally we assume the best of each other and we can work through things. Yeah. So there's no one size fit all or no ideal situation. Yeah. I'll call in opportunities or your co-workers or the people you're in school yeah. with or the people you're in the grocery store with even. I mean, there's yeah. many opportunities to call people out because yes, everyday life presents those. Yeah. And every call out opportunity is also a call in opportunity depending on circumstances. Yeah. What I loved so much in your chapter was how you talked about percent, like percent of an ally and how much we agree. Can you explain that for us? Because I think it's such a good guideline. Well, when I teach my course called White Supremacy in the Age of Trump, I talk about how we who do radical social justice work, we have our own language, our own lexicon, our own jargon that we use with each other. And we have a common worldview in that, you know, we think neoliberal capitalism is problematic to say the least, mm -hmm. that people deserve their full human rights without pause and without consideration of their citizenship or their identity, that the planet Earth is in trouble because of man mm -hmm. and what we do with runaway mm -hmm. yeah. degradation of the environment. I mean, we have these values and worldviews and language in common. So I call us the 90 percenters. And that means we have a high degree of unity, 90 percent agreement amongst ourselves about the shape of the world. Mm -hmm. Our 10 percent disagreement is usually around what we focus on. Like I do abortion rights and reproductive justice while someone else might do mm -hmm. environmentalism or Black Lives Matter or Mm -hmm. the military industrial complex and peace building. We all you know, may work on something different, but we work from a shared worldview. Mm -hmm. A good portion of the call-out culture amongst the 90% is driven by trying to make people become 100%ers. Yep. And that's simply not going to work. Matter of fact, there's enough oppression to go around that we don't even need 100%ers. We need... <laughs> Somebody working on all these different fronts all at the same yeah, time. Yeah. Oh, was that? I love this. Oh, let me see if I can find this quote. It was like, it was, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So when many people have different ideas but move in the same direction, that's a movement. When many people have the same idea and move in the same direction, that's a cult. Right. Yeah. And I'm trying to dissuade 90%ers 
from trying to put all this pressure on us trying to become 100 percenters. I think that energy is better spent on what I call the 75 percenters. Mm -hmm. And these are people who share a large part of our worldview, but perhaps not our jargon. Because mm-hmm. when you talk about neoliberal capitalism, their eyes glaze over. But for me as a reproductive justice activist, a 75 percenter would be someone from the Girl Scouts mm-hmm. who may not be talking about abortion rights as part of their routine badge earning process. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they believe in girls' empowerment and women's empowerment. And so we share a large part of our agenda, even if we don't share the specific focus on what part of women's empowerment and girls' empowerment do we all need to work on. Outside of the 75 percenters are people I describe like my parents. My father was a conservative military guy, served 26 years in the Army, hyper-patriotic, and a member of the National Rifle Association. My mother was a Southern Baptist woman raised by a grandmother who was born in 1893. So my mother bought into the 20th century some serious Victorian values, like girls not wearing pants and stuff. Wow, wow. you know, transmitted to her daughters. And yet my 50% parents gave me a whole lot that I consider my value system about family and love and integrity and stuff. Even though my mother was likely to send money to a faith preacher at the same time I was paying her electric bill because we just differed on certain things. But I like to attribute to my parents my passion for human rights, even though it took a left turn for me, because from age 11 on, my mother insisted that all of her children who were able-bodied had to go out and volunteer. We weren't allowed to sit at home or play aimlessly or Mm -hmm. basically get on her nerves. Mm -hmm. We all had to go out and work for the park service, or for me, I was a candy striper at a medical hospital in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And from age 11 to 14, I delivered library books to wounded soldiers coming home from Vietnam and stuff, which actually had a radical impact on how I felt about war. Because I saw these boys maimed who were scarcely older than I was coming home with missing body parts. And that kind of branded itself into my heart. But so I call my parents 50 percenters because when, depending on how you talk to them and approach them, they'll either move to the left or they'll move to the right. They could go either. Mm -hmm. My father talked about what Uncle Sam, you know, government, old veterans, he was as radical as anybody could ever want to be because he served 26 years and he felt a deal had been made that was being broken by neoliberal economics and the, and the devolving of responsibilities for our veterans because they just didn't live up to their promises. On the other hand, if I tried to, tried to talk to my mother about birth control and abortion, she would swing hard right. Do we try to then capture the 50%? Well, that's my point. My point. Beyond the 50%ers are the 25%ers. And they're the people I think that we share the least worldview with. 
perhaps mm -hmm. the zero percenters even less, mm -hmm. but the 25 percenters are people who act like President Trump is leading a cult and they want to believe in this cult no matter how it contradicts their inner values about being a good human being and a good American citizen and yeah. you know, a person who believes in democracy. They're ready to throw all of that stuff under yeah, the bus. Yeah, and they're losing their cult. Yeah. And so what I think our strategy is in, in deploying the call-out culture and, and, and the call-in culture. First of all, I have no tolerance for bigots, fascists, racists who are proud of it and they want to be that way. I'm calling them out. I am not trying to call them in to mm -hmm. a circle of dialogue because you could only talk to people who are willing to listen. But the 50 percenters and the 75 percenters and the 90 percenters, I'm going to develop a strategy appropriate to each level mm. and a language appropriate to each level. Because communication is key, not being right. But I think my phrase for that is I want to persuade people not to agree with me, but to be with me. And that's what moves people in the same direction as a movement. And so I kind of keep this taxonomy, this grid in my head as I analyze the opportunities to talk to people and decide whether I'm going to deploy a calling in strategy or a calling out strategy. And even after deciding on a calling in strategy or a call out strategy, I have to scale it appropriate to the interaction. And then what do we do with these people who've been burned already? There's so many people who've, you know, they're, they're 50 to 75% and they feel very alienated from the progressive movement. How do we win them back? Well, I don't know if winning them back is the, is the strategy. I want to win them to their better selves and they'll come mm -hmm. back on their own. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're not the the Marines. We're not recruiting a few good men. Yeah, we're persuading people that if you do prize and value your higher self, mm -hmm. then a path forward for you to have the best expression of that, and that is as part of a human rights movement that's trying to take care of everyone on the planet and the yeah. planet itself. Mm -hmm. That's not indulging in the narcissism of individualism and selfishness. Mm -hmm. I want the people who, without a thought in the middle of this COVID virus, are calling on their neighbors to see if they're okay. Yeah. I don't necessarily want the people who are you know, survivalists bunkered down trying not to see about anybody but themselves. Yeah. So say if someone is saying... I, you know, I've, I've had so many people yell at me because I don't say these words, or I feel like they, some activists just think they're better than me because a lot of the, like some of the jargon and elitism and self-righteousness that gets thrown at people. How would you explain it? Because I don't want to like throw people under the bus, be like, yeah, they're assholes, you know, I, they are coming from a place of like truth about what's going on. They're just handling it bad. So like when we're speaking to the 50 and the 75 percenters and they are expressing frustration about some of the things that are going on, how do we explain that without throwing ourselves under the bus, if that makes sense? But the point is they're, they're legitimately outraged by what's going on. Yeah. Even 
they don't use the same language that we use. They feel the hurt, the alienation, the fear. Mm -hmm. They carry with them the same traumatic load that we're carrying. So yeah. why would we think that they're going to be any less traumatized by what's going on than we are? That's true. And so when you keep center their suffering as well as your own in the, in the lens, then I think a more natural empathy comes. Even when they've hurt you, you lose the desire to hurt back. Yeah. Because you're better analyzing what's going on, the fact that we are all in this together, and yeah. that means that we're going to have to work through these painful processes rather than hit back because we're hurt. And then a lot of our hurt is what I call re-stimulated past trauma anyway. I'm a rape survivor. And so I have an automatic reaction when I feel that my personal space is being violated mm -hmm. or someone is trying to intimidate me mm -hmm. or talk down to me and I have to process that for myself because just because there's been times in the past when I've been helpless and violated mm -hmm. this may not be that time the feeling is the same but the circumstances are so different yeah so I don't want to use the word trigger mm -hmm. but I don't want to impose on the present circumstance my triggered emotions and really just you know see see them for what they are but also see the circumstances for what yeah is 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 prevalent and so if someone tries to dominate me or make me feel bad or belittle me my first response is now what's going on with you that make you want to even do that do you realize yeah. what that makes you look like yeah it's just yeah. kind of slide off my back i'm very clear about who i am and what i believe in and what i stand yeah. for and right now i'm standing here wondering about your pain because you're trying to hurt me for no reason and it's yeah. not working so now what else are you going to do what if you were called out you are someone oh, who is called out. All the time. What do you do? It's like kind of like you're in this position where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You try to explain yourself. Do you just block? Then if you block everyone, then that's like, you know, I'm thinking Twitter, then that's no conversations happening. Or if you just stop talking to people, what do you do? Well, first of all, you're going to recognize that whether you're called in or called out, you're going to feel the same thing. You're going to feel defensive. You're going mm -hmm. to feel, oh, my God, I messed up. Oh, my God, I'm embarrassed. Oh, my God, how do I recover from this? I mean, the emotions are the emotions. You know, they're just going to mm -hmm. be there. So like any good therapist will tell you, now what you're going to do, now that you know what's going yeah. on. And usually if someone is trying to call you out, it may be, you need to stop and review what you did, said, or how you behaved mm -hmm. to see if you provided purchase for someone to say, uh, excuse me, yeah. <laughs> that's not good. Apologize sincerely, because even if you don't interpret it as hurtful, obviously they did. Mm -hmm. And so you take ownership for causing harm and then offer an invitation for working with you to prevent future harm. So I'm sorry I hurt your feelings. I'm sorry I said that to make you feel bad. So do you mind working with me to see what I can do better so that I don't do this in the future, particularly to you? 
So when I'm called out, which is quite often, because I have a quick temper, and so I go from zero to 100 before my intelligence takes over. I hear you. <laughs> and so it's a process to stop and let go of the quick twitch yeah. and, and to slow down and, and really think about what's going on inside of you, what's going on outside of you. Why do you feel compelled to even pay attention to this thing or, yeah. or to the person? And so that's why it's an art more so than a science because with practice, you get better and better and yeah. better at it. And you never become perfect. I read a line in the book that the only thing that makes perfection is perfect practice and whoever has that. Yeah. And so you're going to make a lot of mistakes when you're called out or when you try to call people in. But you have to forgive yourself for that and proceed because you're a project. You're a project evolving to be a better person. So you're going to do yeah. it and probably mess it up the first couple of times. But like riding a bicycle, you're going to get up and try riding again. Try improving this emotional intelligence we all need to develop. Say you're called out in a very shitty way, like, ask, like just the, in the worst way in terms of not productive and people piling on. Is it worth saying? And, you know, can we also talk about how you were an asshole? Like, is there any way you can like, like, that's not the right word, but is there any way, if you are called out in a way that we're talking about, like not productive, going after people who like in, in terms of horizontally and like doing this in a way that's public for no reason when you're accessible privately and all these things that we're talking about, is there any value in calling out the call outers, if that makes sense? Well, some people overuse the call out because they're hurting people seeking to hurt people. Mm. So yeah, I try, to, I try to back them down and not in an aggressive way, but in a introspective way. That was very hurtful that you said, what's going on with you that makes you wanna hurt somebody that way kind of thing mm. so that they get a chance to review for themselves without me passing judgment on what's going on with them. Let them say it in their own words. Yeah. But if someone is just being toxic just because that's who they are, that really is determined by their relationship to me. Because, I mean, if they're a dear friend being toxic, I have a whole toolbox for dealing with someone that I really care about because I've gotten to know them and mm -hmm. I probably know their triggers and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. If it's a relative stranger, it depends on the situation and the setting. It may be in a political meeting where we're, we've got an agenda and someone's trying to blow up the agenda with their own personal mm. point of view. Again, I, I'm going to try to find a range of strategies, maybe even invite them to take this concern of theirs and put it in the parking lot for a later discussion mm -hmm. so to move on with our agenda. So show them that we're taking them seriously, but not going to disrupt the agenda for that particular thing. Yeah. If someone does it as a troll over the internet, I'm mostly going to ignore them because I don't feed trolls. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. There's and nothing in the time space that I have on planet Earth that says I should devote it to people 
who choose their limited time on earth to troll people. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I so, I, I don't, like, I, I'm so glad, so glad you say that because I just delete and block trolls immediately. Like, right, why bother? I mean, they need to get a life and you don't have, and it's not your job to help them. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> and you've got a life to live. And so the situation, the setting, the relationship, the intensity of the relationship, the closeness of it, all factor in into whether you call somebody in or call somebody out. But the worst cut you can give to a person is what we do to the trolls, and that's ignore them. Because quite often people are acting out for attention mm -hmm. in many ways. And so you get to decide whether you're going to give that person your attention. And that's often dependent on what's your relationship to that person. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about how call-out culture has gone so severe, and I also thinking about how, as things happen in this world, where like a march towards fascist um, a world is happening, and if call-out culture is coming because things are people are like dehumanized, it's a dehumanizing process, and if that is a result of the fact of what else is going on, it's like filtering over yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. The original definition of a call-out was a duel. Hmm. <laughs> really, that's the actual hmm. definition of calling somebody out because they've impugned your honor and you're going to have a duel with them to decide it. I mean, that's how Alexander Hamilton got killed. <laughs> so calling out is by no means anything new. What I think is different is the viral nature of social media that it can become echoed and repeated and the people don't have to know anything about you or the person being mm -hmm. called out before they're chattering about what they thought they heard or, you know, what the Russian bots uh, put, on, put on the internet or whatever. Yeah. And the way it manifests itself now is what we call the cancel culture. So someone can start a rumor about a person or tell the truth about a person in the call-out culture and people start losing jobs and speaking engagements yeah. and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And so what is different isn't the human emotion or the human impetus behind it, but the technology over which it can spread so rapidly and echo so frequently. Yeah. And so we have to catch up to our own technology with this, but technology is only as useful as the values behind it. And so that's why I'm talking about values to curb the call-out culture, not putting limits on technology or something, because yeah. that won't work. But our engagement with the technology can change, and that's what we actually have control over. So when someone is canceled, if they've done something wrong, after someone's canceled, who do they belong to? Do they not belong to the progressive movement anymore? I'm just not sure like what People, like I hear this a lot, like what do you want someone to do? They did something really stupid. They might've done it really stupid like 20 years ago. I'm not talking about a crime. I'm talking about like, you know, did, just did, or said something stupid. And it was like a long time ago maybe, or not, you know, should they be canceled forever? Like what do you want them to do, I guess? Well, see, that to me is a question for only the most judgmental of us. Because yeah. if there's anybody that's ever not done something stupid, <laughs> as part of the council mob, I think yeah. they're being hypocrites. Yeah. I think that we all have done things and continue to do stupid things. And yeah. that's no reason to X out your membership 
in the human race. I mean, that just doesn't work. Yeah. But, but another aspect of your question that occurs to me is who gets canceled actually is a matter of power and privilege. Because even when someone is apparently canceled, like a celebrity, that doesn't mean they don't still get paid, they can't get gigs, they can't make movies, they can't do comedy mm -hmm. shows. Where someone with less power and privilege getting canceled, it may be life altering and forcing them into a different career or to take a lower profile or really just to avoid their previous circle of people who knew them. And so you can't talk about cancel culture outside of the context of the power and privilege of the person for whom the cancel was directed to. Yeah. Rich white men go golden parachutes as they're getting canceled from corporations. Yeah. With sexual harassment and sexual abuse and stuff. Mm -hmm. And a school teacher posting a uh, picture in a bikini drinking may get canceled and have to change total careers yeah. because somebody saw her vacation pictures on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I worry like for the people who are canceled, like there is other the people waiting with open arms to take them into their movement and convince them to go over that way. But I think what it actually does, yeah, what it actually does is drive people further away from us. Mm -hmm. And if they're in the 50%, it's going to drive them to the right. Yeah. They're going to actually enlarge the ranks of our opponents rather than stay with us. Yeah. It's not fair. It's simply not fair yeah. to be so judgmental over, particularly indiscretions done years ago. Because I know a lot of young people who did not believe that everything you posted online was permanent. So they... Yeah. unwisely put their teenage angst out there <laughs> to see. <laughs> and yeah. so it's now turning back to bite them in the private parts when it comes to job interviews and credit scores and wow. security clearances and whatever else they need. <sighs> and so this judgmental cancel culture is not serving as well and it is not a forgiving culture and it's not a humane culture because it doesn't recognize that we've all done stupid things like we all have the potential to continue to be stupid now if someone has a pattern of stupidity that they have no desire to change they're probably going to end up in my call out pile now that's the other thing about calling out and calling in calling in is an offer of grace but you can't control how people receive your offer. Mm. So you may be able, you may call someone in and say, you know, when you offended so-and-so and so, I'm not sure if that's what you meant. And they may become totally defensive and jump down your throat mm -hmm. just like they jumped down the other person's mm -hmm. throat or whatever. And so you're only responsible for having made the offer. You have no control over their capacity for accepting it. Mm. And at that point, you back up and you choose another strategy. Yeah, it takes a lot of emotional intelligence is what I'm seeing. <laughs> well, and the, and the most emotional intelligent, intelligence you need is to know thyself. I mean, I hate to mm. sound Socratic, but... Because <laughs> <you know? laughs> the other part of calling in is to inquire about why you're doing it. 
what's making you want to reach out and engage with a person who's obviously had demonstrated that they're capable of hurting somebody else or hurting yeah. you. And so you have to be clear on your motives and what's going on with you. For example, as a rape survivor, because my sexual assaults were more than four decades ago, I'm in a different space to talk to sexual offenders than someone whose violation might have been more recent. Mm-hmm. And so I know what's going on with me mm-hmm. is that I'm at peace with what happened to me. Mm-hmm. I see people who violate others as victimized violators. Mm-hmm. And I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt if they're able to engage in civil, peaceful, and accountable conversation. You know, there's, like what we're saying, we're talking about allowing people the ability to express without jumping down their throat. And there are organizations who feel a similar way, but for different means. And I mean people who talk about like freedom of speech organizations that are really just trying to make it more comfortable for like straight, heterosexual, cis, straight, white men to be racist, basically. <laughs> like if there's... I mean, are you talking about this a specific organization like the ACLU uh, or just generally? Uh, just, I just, there's some organizations, um, you know, that shall remain nameless that um, I can't speak on it, but that, you know, just when you start looking at like who they're really trying to protect on, like, especially in like college campuses and it's usually like the ends are, it's run by straight white men and it's like they're meant to protect straight white. and then you hear a lot in the right as well um about like you know you're not letting us have like a freedom of speech like it's a freedom of speech issue and it basically is not they're not talking about like making sure a diversity of voices can be heard kind of thing they might use those terms but that's not what they really mean is the people they're trying to protect are those in, in power already I think that what you're talking about is the manipulation of the First Amendment to foment and perpetuate and perpetrate hatred. Yeah, that's true. Racism, Mm -hmm. homophobia, transphobia, Mm -hmm. and all the other phobias, including xenophobia, right? Mm -hmm. And that is such an unoriginal strategy by the right that we need to ratchet up our ability to deconstruct the fallacies of their arguments. They don't want free speech. They want free speech without consequences. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. And we hold them accountable for the consequences of their speech. At the same time, we try to protect the victims of their speech from harm. Mm -hmm. And so I have no problem deplatforming a Holocaust denier. I don't care. I am not going to indulge your desire to self-indulge to be anti-Semitic. I don't consider that part of the discourse that I have to fight for mm-hmm. and, and sacrifice my values for mm-hmm. are, are racist or homophobic or any of those kinds of things. Now, the question becomes not people who are deliberately manipulating the First Amendment, because those are agent provocateurs. They're trying to provoke a reaction so that they can portray themselves as the victims of an intolerant left who's intolerant of free speech. There's a different strategy for them, because I don't argue with them on free speech grounds. I argue with them on values and racism and homophobia and whatever they're 
pushing routes because mm -hmm. I'm not going to be distracted by the cloak they're trying to throw over their bigotry with the First Amendment. I understand it better than they do, apparently. Now, if someone wants the right to say offensive things because they are being assholes or they are being awkward or something, again, depending on where I put them in the 50 or the 75 or the Mm -hmm. or the 90% uh, category, I may engage with them. But most of the people who are abusing the First Amendment are 25 percenters. Yeah. They're not people that I'm seeking to call in because this is not a battle of words. This is a, value, a battle of values and ideas. Yeah, and I think there's like a difference. There's a, like people kind of are putting it all in the same thing. I'm thinking back to conversations like, like I feel like a, someone um, was talking to who's like fairly, I'd say more of like a 75 percenter, oh. edging to 90. She was like, I just feel like I can't say anything. And she's not the same as the person, the 25 percenter saying like, you, you were all intolerant. It's like, it's different. They're saying I'm, you're intolerant for not letting me be hateful, where she's saying you're not, you're being intolerant for not just letting me explore ideas. That's what I'm saying. There's a difference between the messiness of debate and name calling, mm -hmm. even if it's done with wonderful sounding academic terms. Mm -hmm. And part of our discernment is to be able to distinguish between the two and do an accurate threat assessment. So if someone is just using messy language around trying to figure out what they think, and they may even say some things that, you know, maybe a microaggression or something that's I might consider it appropriate. I'm going to take time, generally, try to figure out what their motives are, because your motives tells you where to slot them in my grid. Yep. If you're doing it on purpose to hurt me, you're a 25 percenter. If you're doing it because you're still figuring things out, but with no intention to harm, mm -hmm. I'm probably going to say you're a 50 percenter or sometimes a 75 or a 90 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, motives do matter. All harm, you know, everything that hurts you does hurt, but motives matter because if someone accidentally steps on your foot, there's a qualitative difference when someone does it on purpose. Absolutely. And people say like, oh, like, I feel like I can't say anything. And it's like, well, you know who feels like they can say anything? Like more like, you know, Ku Klux Klan marching without their hoods. Like those people feel that they can express something now. And there's a, a reason and that's because there are people enabling that. Like it's a different, it, we're talking about two different things. Like the call out culture is, is one thing. And then people feeling like um, empowered by this neo-fascist regime is another. It's two different things. It's not like, yeah, it's not the same. I think what they have in common is the feeling that people are being shut down. But they're being shut down for different reasons and in different ways. People don't like being held accountable either, because again, it's going to make us feel fearful, defensive, embarrassed, those kinds of things. Yeah. And so people will come out of that set of feelings using the most extremist statement of what happened. Oh, you just totally shut me down and I don't have a right to speak up and blah, blah, blah. And you're treating me as bad as the fascists would. Of course, that's not true but they're coming from that place of hurt and de hurt defensiveness that has triggered that portion of their emotions that make them think that you're treating them just like a fascist would. Mm.
So they get real sloppy with the language when they're responding that way. But we have the, hopefully, the patience and the love and the emotional intelligence to work with them over where that feeling is coming from and what's different about me saying that you can't use the N-word because you're a white person and me being a fascist. Yes. Yeah, that's beautiful. Speaking of defensive people, I have a character named Judy. Um, and I, if I may, <laughs> um, so she'd love to ask you a question. Um, all right, so the thing is, I am a former lesbian, lesbian feminist and revolutionary. Now, I, I, I'm also the manager of the Park Slope Food Co-op. Um, all right, so I think there's a thing right now. We, we can't uh, understand. There's a line between, I'm, I'm a little bit older, so there's a line between respecting your elders that no one seems to in, understand, okay? Um, that I maybe don't understand the 15,000 pronouns that people want to use. However, um, I think that there's also uh, a tendency to just dismiss my experience just because I don't use the same words as they do. So how can we convince young people that I'm not the enemy? Again, young people are young people. Guess what? Young people are going to young. <laughs> That's what they do very well. And so if you have that elder status that you claim, you should anticipate that and come up with a strategy for being the elder and not just claiming it. So yes, young people are going through all kinds of identity formation issues that are absolutely appropriate that you also went through and they're going to be touchy as a porcupine over everything that they think they know, not recognizing that they won't even think the same thing the next day. <laughs> and so why are you acting young when young people young? Hmm. <laughs> you know, that doesn't make sense to me. I feel but, like as an open, I want to be the right to be grumpy sometimes. That's what I think about. Well, yeah, we all got a human right to be grumpy and why? And I, one of my greatest indulgences. But the point is, can you offer helpful lessons without visiting your pain on them in the process about respecting differences in generation? I mean, I think the nature of the threat before us is going to require all the generations. No one generation has all the answers. And so you need to, as a grumpy lesbian elder with a peculiar way to talk, <laughs> barely comprehensible. Anyway, you need to check what's going on with yourself so that that elder thing is not just an age, but a sign of maturity. That makes very much sense. I think sometimes people hear the words lesbian, feminist, and former commune member and all those things together, and they assume that I won't. So should I not use the labels that they find offensive? Is that, does that make sense? I think you'll be a very confused person if you go around finding the labels that other people want you to use for yourself. <laughs> and how old do you have to be to get that memo? Well, uh, I guess I'm the age I am. That's, that's the age I've got. I, but I will use your, I will report back to you. Maybe I'll, I'll hold a workshop in the, in the, in the. But the point is, I think underneath the banter is a very serious issue. And that is, there's a lot of tension between different social movements, not the least of which your 
story suggests, for example, the tension between what they call the feminist movement and the trans movement and the right mm -hmm. gender pronouns and how the call-out culture just explodes between those two movements with name calling like TERFs and all kinds of names. This is a serious issue we need to discuss and give it the attention that it deserves. But every movement has a left, right, and a center. And I find the more right-wing versions of each of those movements are the most intolerant ones. Yeah. So the real radical feminists who don't believe trans women are men, they represent one wing of my movement. The real radical trans men who think, uh, trans women who think that they have sole claim to the term woman <laughs> represent another wing of that movement. And so in terms of my calling strategies, I try to work with the left and the center. I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince the people on the right wings of those movements because they're the ones least amenable to receiving new information in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I created Judy because I saw like sometimes, you know, like um, we're just assuming like people would, I would hear comments like just assume because they're a little bit older. Maybe they got a little bit of a rat tail, you know, maybe they, and they're going to just assume all these things about their politics and like avoid them and make fun of them. And it was like, well, well, aren't they rather shallow when they do that? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, so all you can do is hope that they'll grow in the meantime while you turn your attention to a more fruitful place. Yeah. And, and I created Judy to show like, you know, even people like they're hurting, like they might say the wrong words and you might fight with them about stuff. But like, know that they're like a hurting person who just wants to belong and they're, they're suffering and there's a lot of, you know, problems if they just don't know how to communicate. And even though they're older, you know, we all have problems, like even older. Oh, we all have problems. I mean, young people have some of the most awkward communication <laughs> in the world. I mean, I mean, they're the ones that have the, you know, that say the words that they most want to walk back quickly kind of yeah. thing. It's part of the human condition. Yeah. I don't know if I would even attach an age to it because we all can commit the ultimate faux pas. We, we just do. Yeah. And it's a question of whether or not we can create a culture of forgiveness, which starts with self-forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Because if you own your mistakes, then you're more sympathetic towards other people mistakes. Mm -hmm. If you're unable to own your mistakes, then you become more judgmental on theirs. Yeah, that's a quotable. That's a tweetable. That's a tweetable. <laughs> I wish I was writing this stuff down as I say well, it sometimes. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll definitely have the recording and it'll be up on Reconcile the Isle. Uh, for you to pull from hopefully for a long time. And so where can, um, where can people find out more about your work? Well, I have a website, LorettaRoss.com, and that's where I have a lot of videos posted and speeches and writings and things posted. That's probably the best way to reach me. Mm -hmm. I thought that once I retired from active social justice work, that I'd better set up a website so yeah. that I could be findable. And so it's at LorettaRoss.com. I also have an agent called Speak Out that books me for colleges and universities mm -hmm. around the country and other you know, nonprofit events where mm -hmm. 
my work on reproductive justice, human rights, violence against women, and now white supremacy and the call-out culture mm -hmm. sometimes makes people want to engage with me. Very cool. All right, so we will um, direct everyone to thank you for being a wonderful guest. Thanks. All right, thank you for having me on your show. Ah, that was such a good interview. I'm going to call Melania and see what she thought. Melania, did you listen to that? Are, are you going to try to call Donald in now? Why? Melania, he is... The best. So glad you agree with me. Oh, my God. Melania. I feel like you might be in the 25% Loretta talked about. <gasps> so insulting. I am always and forever the 1%. Yeah, since you met Donald, let's get real. Okay, so listen, for the rest of this, let's think about this. Callouts are a civil rights strategy for people in power that are inaccessible. If you have access to people, you have a lot of choices before calling them out. Calling out is splintering our potential for change because it's a horizontally targeted tactic. And it's moving people who don't completely agree with us to the right. Now, if you're opting out of calling out someone, it doesn't mean you're leaving them off the hook. Every call out opportunity is also a call in opportunity. Remember, we will never agree 100% on all issues. 90% can be good enough. And we should focus on calling in the 75%. And of course, we adjust our call in strategies and our communication strategies based on the percentages that Loretta talked about and also on our relationship with that person. Let me know what you think. Before we go into the I Don't Care Do You segment, I'd like to do two things. First, I want to encourage everyone to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really, really helps other people find us. The algorithm likes, rates, and reviews. So please do it. Second, I want to tell you that you can follow Reconcile the Isle on my Twitter and Instagram at Lauren Logi, L-O-G-I. And do consider signing up at laurenlogie.com slash podcast to get the free stuff from me and my guests. This episode, we're going to provide links to the writings that we spoke about in this podcast. And also on my website, you can find about some other exciting things going on. My book, Inside Melania, What I Learned About Melania Trump by Impersonating Her, is out now. And we'll hopefully do a little bit of a tour on the Melania Trump Roadshow, Get Out the Vote and Get Me Out of the White House of Garbage, virtually and sometime after then in person, fingers crossed. Listen, we have to learn how to have public dialogue again. The world's on fire and we've got to talk about it. And there is no better way to understand the importance of this by reading the headlines. So, Melania, give us the top headlines in the I Don't Care Do You segment. Here's all the things that I don't care do you about. Florida man and his sons are charged with selling toxic chemical as a coronavirus cure to thousands. The hunger crisis linked to coronavirus could kill more people than the disease itself. My Donald now commuted Roger Stone's sentence. And that doesn't mean commute as to go to work, because <laughs> Trump don't do. It means you go free without dealing with consequences. <laughs> that is so Trump's. But listen, for the rest of you, I don't care. Do you? Thank you to everyone who has made this podcast possible. Thank you to Sophia Reyes-Jones for editing, to Devin Edwards for creating the intro, Christopher Catalano for the voiceover, Maddie McLennan for making the podcast art, and a shout out to Alan Waters, Danny Holtz, and Craig Franson, who helped me to conceptualize this podcast. And of course, thank you to Loretta Ross for being such a wonderful guest. See you in two weeks. <laughs>